Welcome to the Future Learning Design Podcast. So the UW submission is so aptly written that it offers us both a call, a challenge, and a desire for wanting a better world. And if education is the way the society evolves itself, we have a leading role to play in yeah. driving that evolution and maybe not miss the moment. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast. My name is Tim Logan, and the podcast is brought to you in partnership with Notosh. For this week's conversation, it was a huge pleasure to speak with Faith Abioden, who is the Executive Director at United World Colleges International. Faith brings a wealth of experience from his time spent as an education and social enterprise leader, international affairs analyst, writer, and speaker. Prior to UWC International, Faith spent nearly a decade at the African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg, South Africa, where he served as an executive leading where he served as an executive leading the recruitment of thousands of young leaders from all over the world for ALA's programs. He also headed the Communications, Marketing, Program Recruitment and Partnerships Department, helping to build ALA's global brand and developing strategic partnerships with governments, corporates, foundations, NGOs and schools. Earlier in his career, Faith was a journalist with The Guardian in Nigeria and also founded the Speech Academy, an elocution and public speaking institution, and Future Africa, a public sector leadership organization with a network of emerging leaders spread across more than 30 African countries. Well, thank you, Faith. It's really a great pleasure to be able to chat to you today. And it's, the UWC movement is a, is a kind of an emotional one for me because it was the very first time I as a teacher in the UK, discovered the international school world when somebody introduced me to somebody who was working at UWC Waterford Kamplaba in uh, Eswatini, Swaziland, as it was then. And I was just blown away, blown away by the work that was going on there. And that's what kind of kicked off my exploration into international education. So I have a, there's a place in my heart for uh, UWC in that regard, but really happy to be able to chat to you about it, just to, you know, find out a bit more about the movement in general you personally and what your vision is for that and also just to hopefully spread the word about the amazing work that's going on there so thanks for joining firstly amazing thank you for that and it really is a privilege to to connect with fellow practitioners and fellow enthusiasts of international education and and also to find our shared connections to to a mission that is so powerful and continues to drive us forward inspire us and and we can see the impact of what we're doing on such a daily yeah. basis. And that's the joy of, of what we're doing. So this Fantastic. is Fantastic. So, I mean, if we start with that kind of mission and the why behind DWC, obviously last year, for people who are not aware, it was the 60th anniversary right. since 1962 of the opening of UWC Atlantic College in Wales. So maybe for those who aren't so familiar with the movement, perhaps you could give just a, a brief kind of colour on, in, you know, in terms of what was the why behind it setting up obviously in terms of setting the scene it'd be interesting because it comes from a really important and values-based place i think absolutely uwc stands for the united world colleges and today that is a movement of 18 international schools sitting on 20 campuses on four continents supported by about 156 national committees working in all parts of the world and this support uses schools by helping to identify students who come to study there, as well as run the selections process, supporting with some fundraising, and then some student support on an ongoing basis. So essentially, when we think about UWC, it is the connection of individuals, organizations, schools that have been spun out of that singular vision that was born in Wales in the, in the early 1960s. As far as we can trace the history of the UWC movement, between the late 1950s and early 1960s, when a number of things came together. You had individuals who were education leaders and passionate of wanting to make the world a better place through education, as well as world leaders who were interested in helping to rebuild a new world order mm. on the back of the Second World War and, and the Cold War, which was at its peak at the time. And there was this confluence of minds that came together realizing that as NATO was being formed, and there was this idea of bringing people together to rebuild approaches to peace by people and nations who were opposite, previously opposing ends of the conflict, and thinking about what a new world order could look like based on multilateralism, international understanding, uh, and led by three gentlemen, Court Hahn, 
Lawrence Daval and Desmond Hall. And the three of them brought together the best of both worlds, really. Port Hahn being an educational leader and Lawrence Daval and Desmond Hall being naval leaders. And mm-hmm. the idea of the confluence was bring together at the time young men only who had come from the countries of the North Atlantic, you know, so North America, parts of Europe, etc. And that grew over time. But originally was a small number of countries where you had young men selected to represent their countries in this new institution through which they would discover the world anew, discover each other, and learn to build peace and commit service together. And that vision survived by itself until girls were allowed to join the school as time went. Mm -hmm. And then it became a full-fledged school that was built partly on the ideas of Kurt Hahn, who had been a revolutionary German educator, with lots of great ideas about challenging young people to seek purpose and pursue service and seek the best of each other. And those ideas overlaid with innovative thinking and education at the time, originally doing the, the Cambridge A-levels, but growing over time to develop new ways of education, which gave birth in part to the International Baccalaureate. Yeah. Uh, so this, those early days were just really revolutionary in terms of what they were making possible. And written into the founding documents was the desire that this would not simply be one school. It was going to be the foundation for a growing number of similar Atlantic colleges at the time in multiple parts of the world. And towards the, the late 1960s and around 1967, the, the board of Atlantic College determined that it was time to begin the expansion after the first five years and go set up more Atlantic colleges. And so the chair of the board, of the, uh, George Shuster, uh, was tasked with finding the person who would lead the global expansion of the UWC movement or then Atlantic Colleges movement. And so they found Lord Mountbatten, who had been... Yeah obviously in many ways influential in parts of Asia, representing the, the British kingdom, the last viceroy in India, um, and then Burma. And so Lord Mountbatten came on board as the first president of this global expansion, which he aptly renamed United World Colleges, and the essence of building a united world through education. Yeah. And so that was the birth of the UWC movement. Uh, and First, you have expansion, in, in, and there's a bit of a debate about which one came first, or which, which I will not get into. Uh, <laughs> but essentially, we had a school set up in Singapore, and then a school set up in Canada. And then you had USA and Italy that came afterwards in the, in the 1980s. And then you had Waterford Kamplaba, which you referenced, which joined, having been founded actually only five months after Atlantic College was founded. Yeah. Uh, but in a very, very different time in apartheid South Africa, and the yeah. school was founded in, in Swaziland at the time. So that movement has just grown, really, mm. from one school to now 18 schools and 20 campuses in total. But really find this incredible endeavor, which has survived now 61 years and hopefully many more to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's incredible. And just listening to you there, there's so many interesting resonances with the moment we're in now in terms of the poly crisis, the meta crisis, whatever you want to, loads of, you know, global challenges. And that, I think actually that's part of why I really was keen to talk to you because I think there's there's something mm. now that seems to be happening. And, and I, yeah. I see UWC taking on again, that kind of, mm-hmm. that work of rethinking, rebuilding, you know, just really reflecting on what should education look like now? What does the world mm. need now in, in all these different aspects? What do young people need? And yeah. there's, there's a lot of interesting aspects there there's also the kind of colonial aspect which obviously comes through in what you're talking about which i know is a is a big unraveling in in terms of an important piece that Mm. you all are doing in terms of reflecting Mm -hmm. on that process of decolonizing and understanding and yeah just fascinating and and i mean your your mission says force to unite and just reflecting perhaps on partly what i've just been saying about this moment we're in where, where do you see what do you see the role now particularly of uwc given that phrase a force to unite because it, it mm. feels incredibly polarized out there you know we've yeah. talked about this before you know in terms of young people or social media and all of the different ways that education is happening debates around education but also politically economically socially just a lot of division and polarization that force yeah. to unite feels yeah. quite urgent yeah. right now right yeah i think firstly our education was always of the times in which we live And what was established in 1962 was absolutely necessary for that time. I was listening to the Director General of the IB, Olipeka, and and he made a statement that sat with me deeply a few weeks ago. He said that education is the way that society evolves. Education is the way society changes itself. 
right? So not only do we recognize the moment we're in, we also have yeah. to think about the moment we are growing into and how education itself leads us towards a new society. Look, the world is incredibly polarized today. And that polarization has been accelerated by lots of things. I think globally, we are dissatisfied with leadership and images of leadership. And there is a sense that we just have a vacuum of trust in individuals and in institutions in processes, things don't move quickly enough. There's just so much need in the world. Yeah. When you think at a meta level, the, the world is going through a series of evolving crises. And, and you said meta crises are this all at the same time. You know, pol the political moments in which we live, at the, you know, in the world today don't inspire a lot of hope in people because you just see concern after concern after concern. And when you're a young person consuming all that information, it just numbs your mind in mm. some way because you you begin to just assume there's so much negativity in the world and you face it everywhere. Yeah. Now, when you look beyond economic and political concerns, the environmental concerns around us are perhaps more pronounced now today. You know, this summer alone, the number of wildfires and extreme floods and rainfall that we've seen in the world has perhaps come quicker than mm -hmm. any time in recent history, because you, it's like you switch on the news. It's happening in India, in Japan, in China, in parts of the U.S. So you're thinking it's all happening at the very same time. Yeah. Wildfires in Greece, in Hawaii, in parts of the U.S., in Canada. Boom. This is a moment. We yeah. really can't avoid what's going on. So as a young person, you're just overwhelmed by so much concerning you know, data. Where do you go? How do you navigate this this yeah. period? And what is the role of education in helping to both inspire hope and also offer a pathway, you know, to tangible solutions? That's the way we are thinking and we should be thinking at UWC about what it means for us to draw from our history. Again, going back to the 1960s, when the world itself felt very hopeless, mm. you know, and it, it looked like we we're going to be caught up in this endless cycle of conflict. And the intention of the time was to provide a counterweight to the dominant narrative of the day to say, if the world will find its way out of this, we can, through education, offer a pathway to a solution. And peace was the dominant need of the day. Peace with each other, peace with the environment, peace between nations, and offering a, a way to sustainability. So the UWC mission is so aptly written that it offers us both a call, a challenge, and a desire for wanting a better world. And we are living in that moment. And I'm very hopeful that what we create out yeah. of this moment will not only serve our institutions, but also from inspiration for the rest of the world, really believing that we all can't give up. We all can't be despondent. And if education is the way the society evolves itself, we have a leading role to play in yeah. driving that evolution and maybe not miss the moment. Yeah, it's fascinating that exactly that movement and that evolution, because as you said, education has a critical role to play in that, but it also often plays a quite a conservative role in the in the movement of in social movement, if we can call it that, right? That's right. So it also plays this kind of economic role, obviously, in terms of serving the economy. And we know that mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk around does the economy, you know, the way that the capitalist neoliberal economy is currently structured, is that serving us? So the education system is also battling with serving the current economy. But but I think mm. what's fascinating is, to me, perhaps, is that there's been in that other space of, as you were saying, what how can education support what might be coming next and kind of giving birth to that next thing that is a more yeah. progressive urge rather than this conservative? And it's balancing those intention, obviously, all the time with exams yeah. and the need to support young people to live their lives and careers, of course. But that's where I see UWC really fascinatingly is in that space of the kind of the avant-garde, right? Moving out into that space of, well, what does education look like and mean and how can it serve to build? And I think that's that's a fascinating place which you are situated. And as you said, the, the mission is fully is on the money in terms of, of doing that. But but it obviously has to translate into practical reality for the young people. So I don't know if you wanted to jump in on the reflection, but yeah. I'd love to ask you about the then where does that go in terms of concrete implementation yeah. of that? I think firstly we we recognize the role that we play and the opportunity we have to experiment and try things out and lead, you know, us against what might be you know government-driven institutions that have a core curriculum to teach to and all of that, and all the private schools are probably just chasing academic grades and things of that and, and reputation. Sure. We sit in between those worlds in which we are able to elevate mission first. 
really think about how best to operate in the service of young people and operate in the service of society. And if we do anything right, it's to foster space for dialogue, for debate, for hard questions. We can give ourselves the gift of time and bring young people into space with each other, with the issues, with adults, with you know, in, in a trusting environment and allow people to sit with that complexity and not try to zoom past it as we tend to do in society. You're quick to get onto the next exam, the next purpose, the next big thing. But within UWS schools, we're able to foster space for difficult conversations. And within that, also cultivate within young people the capacity to try to work through those things. We have forums, we have all the settings that challenge the mind and really drive heart at the heart of what is possible in society. So that is almost a philosophical approach. Yeah. The practical approach is, is how we look at curriculums, for example. And you, you'll touch on this shortly, I know, but it's about giving ourselves back the gift that we had at the beginning of the UWC movement, which was pursuing innovation, not for the sake of it, but being able to step ahead of others and imagine what should be, and then doing the hard work of codifying these mm-hmm. ideas of what should be into a curriculum of today, not knowing for sure where we are going. Yeah. Because we're in a world in between times. We don't know what's going to be, but we know that what is will not be for much longer. Yeah. Right. So we have to kind of traverse these two worlds of sitting with the established orthodoxy of, of education while also knowing that what we are doing right now will not last much longer. You know, yeah. look look at the way we think about artificial intelligence today. You know, a year ago, we weren't having the conversations we're having today. Imagine what we're going to be doing in five years' time. We can't actually fathom how much interventions like AI would append the simple things that we are so used to now yeah. that will not look anything close to what we're doing in five years' time. And how do we begin to create these educational spaces in advance of that transformation? Mm. It's just one of the questions we sit with. But more importantly, it's thinking about what the constant needs of society will be and how to integrate a systems-based approach into our conversations, because nothing sits in isolation any longer. Our politics and economics and geographies and climate concerns, all of those things are interwoven. So we we do have that challenge of helping people move beyond their comfort zones, beyond their little silos of thinking, and always playing at the intersection of how society is organized. And those are not easy challenges because we are doing the hard work of pioneering, yeah. It's a lot easier to follow, but we have the responsibility to lead. And, and that's what I'm proudest of, that we're able yeah. to sit with that complexity and have really difficult conversations. And when we are successful, the world can borrow from what we have pioneered. And, and, and we're grateful to be in this place where we can really influence a lot of others. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I mean, obviously goes without saying that not all of it will work right no because that's, that's inevitable. experimentation that's inevitable right exactly yeah. but also I, I totally agree with what you're saying about that kind of space for emergence right we hear this word emergence quite a lot and it can be a bit jargony but at the same time without knowing what is coming what what will arise from sitting with the question as you said right sitting with the complexity working with young people listening to them something will arise from that but we don't necessarily and it's you know, again, it's these polarized debates. It doesn't mean that we're therefore leaving the young people to figure it out themselves. It's a dialogic process, as you said. It's about dialogue, right? But it that's such an important insight, I think, for people is that if we think we're still passing on knowledge and wisdom to the young people, clearly there's we, there's no that's space. Exactly. There's no space for the emergence there, right? It's that's got right. to emerge and, and allow space to arise something new. But interesting. So if we get concrete and you know practical obviously i think i'm sure people will be really interested to hear what are some of the specific examples of how that gets manifested and I, i'm personally interested also in across those 18 20 campuses 18 schools around the world they all have different cultures different settings different contexts mm-hmm. they're also bubbling up different innovations and different ideas yeah. as they evolve in their particular context based on the need there and the particular yeah cohorts they have so also i'd be interested to hear other than the the programs but also how do the different colleges have different personalities and the autonomy within the network to Mm. develop those Mm. different aspects Mm. 
The first and foremost thing about the UWC schools is that they're relevant to the locations where they're, where they're based. Yeah. And that's that's very important that you, you don't lead globally unless you can lead locally. And so our colleges, schools find lots of ways to be authentic to the local environments. And if you're the school in Costa Rica, a nation that is built almost entirely on the concept of sustainability, it's written in, in the constitution, it, yeah. you have protected spaces. How do you lead authentically as a school built around sustainability? It means that firstly, you develop your own sustainability framework as a school. Mm. You build a curriculum around it. And now you rebuild an entire campus around the concept of sustainability and reciprocity with the environment. Yeah. You know, it, it was the first time in my entire work in education that I went to a school that had determined that by the time the school and they're building a whole new campus, this construction project would have created a better home for the plants and animals that were there before they showed up. That's not typical in education, yeah. right? Yeah, you really. show up and you plant something there and forget about the plant species that were that were indigenous there. But to make the commitment to say, this is who we are, what it means to be authentic in this environment, yeah. we're going to build a school on the edge of a uh, national park and ensure that the plants and animals and birds and butterflies that were indigenous to the environment have a much better home when we are done. That's genuine and that takes work. It's not a simple statement that's out there. If it's a school in Thailand and you recognize the importance of mangrove planting for that part of the world, and you've seen what deforestation has done to the country, and you commit to mangrove reforestation, and every single year, every child from the age of you know two, the youngest students who are in the school, all the way to 18-year-olds are involved in, in sustainability projects, a lot revolving around mangrove reforestation, you begin to fall in love with the idea of you know walking the walk. Right. And and doing what it means to actually make the, the environment a whole lot better. If you're the school in Germany and you're concerned about carbon footprint, because you know that part of our model means that we have international exchange. Kids come from all parts of the world together and you commit to replanting trees and carbon offsetting for every single bit of emission that you're responsible for. That's authentic. So all of the schools are finding ways to be responsive to the local environment and finding ways to develop their own ways of being, ways of organizing, and also ensuring that the local communities around them are profiting from this new thinking mm-hmm. and profiting from the from the expertise of the schools. Not just the locals, but local schools. So seeing UWC schools being hubs of innovation, teaching other teachers around them how to teach the way we teach, and offering our spaces as as incubators yeah. for for others to learn how education can be done differently, they're just examples from all over the world that make me incredibly proud mm. you know, to belong to an organization so determined to go there to do what needs to be done. I just returned from Waterford Kampala, the school celebrating its 60th anniversary as well. And on tour, the facilities manager was showing me the the sustainability projects they had, the the solar plants they had everywhere you know so they don't have they can be off the grid they've got their own campus farm and i'm thinking this is great there's a biodigester over there to kind of recycle the first question i asked him was how are the students learning about what is being done because it's possible for us to be walking the walk but the students don't actually accompany the school on this journey they might ignore what's going said no that's actually not the case so you bring the students in to see how the school is living up to its own mission And that's that's where I think the real work is being done. We don't simply put up signposts to say, you know, please switch off the lights. We actually do the work and educate the students alongside the practitioners. And at the end of the day, they become much bigger champions. They turn their advocacy first on us, which is the proof of our success. Yeah. When the students challenge us for not being more sustainable, we know we're doing a good job because their orientation has been switched on and they can then identify the other gaps that we should walk to fulfill. And, and that's that's what gives me a lot of delight, mm. of course. It's amazing. And the, the other, I mean, I had the great pleasure of working with that community for a little bit last year, which was amazing for mm. me, but also the question of how does what they're learning as a community there support mm. and enable and filter out into the local environment of Eswatini more broadly? Yes. Because I think yes. that can be a challenge for international schools as this kind of Absolutely. somewhat a bubble, right, of yes. of privilege. And, you know, we'll come back yes. to that in a minute. But yes. the, th- that's a really important dynamic as well, is how not only the 
environmental and, and local context in that sense, but also the local context in terms of the local society and politics and local councils nearby and, and communities nearby. And that's an important dynamic too, that in terms of the those young people in the college also understanding how do those connections get made yeah. or, yeah. you know, supported. Yeah. One of the best things about UWS schools actually is the intense connection to service. I think more than I have encountered in international schools or schools generally, because service has been written into the DNA of UWS schools from the beginning, you know, we're constantly on the hunt for opportunities to partner with local communities, not in a transactional way, but in a way that, you know, collaborates, builds with them and allowing them to see the school as their own space, you know, not just in Eswatini, which by itself is fabulous, you know, from observation, having space, they, they're about to host a camp called the Brave Girls Camp, which is a camp for girls from, from the community to come to the school. They would not otherwise get a chance to come to the school. They come to the school to experience a UWC education and go back home. They just hosted a careers fair, again, national-wide careers fair at the school. Come learn about how to plan your career at the school. They have a huge project, you know, with refugees, folks who are much far away and who wouldn't dare to dream of a UWC education, having the chance to come to UWC campus and dream. So those are all things that are authentic to Eswatini. But far beyond that, you know, I've seen in, in UWC campuses where students from local schools who don't have laboratories of their own, you know, because the schools are under-resourced, they yeah. can come to UWC schools and use the laboratories as part of their learning. These are all authentic ways of partnering with local communities and being off those places, not yeah. just passing by and bringing international students to see them. I had a chance to go to UWC Diligent in Armenia as well. And that part of the world, you know, that's, you know, often forgotten, ignored and all of that. You can see how the existence of a school transforms the entire local community because the school is now being staffed by people from that part of the world who would otherwise yeah. not be able to encounter kids from all over the world and faculty from all over the world. So this is this is really authentic to UWC, and it's it's something that we are proud of, and and we seek to encourage for a lot of others who are doing international education to not be passers by in local communities, but to really deeply engage with those communities and leave them much better than yeah. they otherwise would have been unless they showed up. It's um, I wonder if it's worth just letting people know just in terms of how does it work logistically for the young people going to a college because this was something I learned yeah. that was slightly changes the way you view the colleges that but students are not applying to a specific college in a particular country they're applying to become a UWC student they are then allocated somewhere it could be anywhere yeah. in the world is that correct yeah yeah it's it's a fascinating feature of the UWC movement that the original design was the students were chosen to represent their countries by these national committees that, you know, seek the best in courts across each of the countries. And then they, they assign them to the colleges where they are best fit and where they can most learn. And so today, if you were a young person in Argentina who heard about the UWC movement, you can apply to the UWC Argentina National Committee. You go through a rigorous selection process. And then once you are on the short list to go to a UWC, you might be assigned to go to UWC Southeast Asia in Singapore, or you might be assigned to go to Waterford Kamplaba in Eswatini, or you might be assigned to go to Atlantic in Wales, and you join the UWC movement, and then you are marched to a school, which is a, it's a fascinating journey. It's a chance for young people to also kind of let go of some of their own inhibitions and biases against the world. Some kids wouldn't dream about wanting to go to Thailand for school. But when it's your turn and you're picked to go to Thailand, you have to bring the best of yourself to Thailand and also fall in love with Thailand. <laughs> and what has been one of the most fascinating experiences for me is seeing, and I'll pick Eswatini as an example again, it's kind of small part of the world. The Waterford alumni are some of the most passionate, proud, you know, utterly loyal yeah. people that I have met because it's like they fell in love with the place. Yeah, now, if you'd ask them to randomly pick where in the world they would love to go to school, they most likely wouldn't have picked Eswatini. Sure. But having gone there and experienced the culture and the environment, it's the one thing in their life that they think about as transformational. And they can't wait to go back there. I see the same thing with Mosta in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Again, not a part of the world many people even can identify on a map or dream about going to. Yeah. But once you've been there and you've had that experience, you come back thinking, 
that's the best school in the world. But it wasn't what you grew up dreaming about. Mm. It's just, it's what's possible when this magic happens and people are matched to a location and they fall in love with the place, transforms their worldviews, the people, the location, the service. It's it's just a powerful conference. No, absolutely. And I I wanted to ask you about this later, but maybe we'll we'll do it now because it's relevant. But there is a perception of, of, around significant privilege and elitism, or not elitism, but of an elite organization, right, with, with the UWC movement. And I think yeah. that's my observation externally is partly that is because of some of the press that some auspicious students mm-hmm. get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But actually, given what you're talking about, there is with these national committees, there's a significant operation there to take the concept of diversity and really be very intentional about what that means socioeconomically in all all sorts of ways. So perhaps you could, could you just say a little bit about that and even just in terms of what the percentages are there and how that works? Because I think it's a stereotype that I'd be interested to challenge. (laughs) It's, it's fascinating because when you think about who's been a typical UWS student, something of the nature, some of the names of the press, you know, easily jump onto would be the, the more prominent families. But realistically, and sometimes higher, proportion of students who come to UWC are on scholarships. And, and we're talking about thousands of people. This, you know, it's, it's not one or two students. The vast majority of UWC students have come from backgrounds where they probably typically wouldn't afford it. They're people who have shown by virtue of hard work and commitment that they want to help to make the world a better place. And the idea of deliberate diversity means that we don't exclude anyone particularly those who've come from more resourced backgrounds, because by having them educated alongside people from vastly different environments than they are, their consciousness is also adjusted, improved, upgraded, if you like. And so we have students from every socioeconomic level imaginable. You have you know, people who've come from absolutely nothing and who've you know, had their entire lives transformed. And there are people whose families can afford a high quality education and a UWC is still the right place for them to go to school. And when you come to the schools, everyone is evened out one way or the other, because you are not distinguishable by virtue of what your parents' name is or what your last name is. It really is your commitment to helping to make the world a better place. And so we have thousands and thousands and thousands of students who come through every year. We receive north of 20,000 applications every year to come you know, through our two-year colleges, and we're able to bring in about 2,000 or thereabouts of them each year into UWCs. And many of them are sponsored you know, through fundraising by the national committees or by the schools and colleges or those of us at UWS International. So this is not by any means an elite group of schools and, and elite here in the sense of being disconnected from society. I think about the different kind of elite. And the kind of elite here is, you know, conscious about the needs of the world, passionate about helping to make a difference and empowered, encouraged, enabled to go out and actually begin to make a difference. If that's what it means to be elite, then by all means, we're elite, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're really out there doing the work. But if it's all about being ostracized from society and being out of touch, this is not one of those. These young people are really doing the work to make a difference in the world. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it's, I think it's important what you're saying about the, the kind of bi-directional, you know, often we get these siloed, socioeconomically, particularly siloed schools where... You know, people from very, very privileged and affluent backgrounds are not interacting with people from vastly different places. And I think that's such a valuable experience in all sorts of ways in order Mm -hmm. to, you know, build empathy, but also just, you know, just kind of really understand diversity in in all senses of what that means. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely. So, I mean, slightly going back to the, as you said, about that kind of idea of innovating and building curriculum. And I, 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 from an educational point of view, I'm also very interested in the way you mentioned Costa Rica and the, with the sustainability framework and how that's mm-hmm. weaving itself into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. What you're doing, particularly at Atlantic College in Wales with the IB, but also I know it's coming in UWC Singapore next yeah. year, is this yeah. an evolution, let's say, radical evolution of yeah. the of the IB diploma. And I think that experimenting that innovation there is is a really fascinating moment. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying earlier about the kind of the moment we're in and the, yeah. with, with the UWC Atlantic College course being systems transformation, That's which right. is even the, even the name there is it speaks to something of this time between worlds that you were talking yes. about. 
Yeah. So perhaps you could say a little bit about, yeah, how do you see that relationship with the IB and also most importantly, that work of evolving curriculum in such an important way to address yeah. where we are? I think it's a, it's a great time to be having a conversation about innovation, especially, again, as a counterweight to this loss of hope and disillusionment about education by itself, you know, being out of touch with society. If you listen to commentators, they would almost always say that what is happening in schools right now don't reflect the mm. needs of society. And, and we're learning math and history and classics and, and, and all that stuff, but the world is moving so, so much quicker. Now, the IB by itself faces this questions of being out of touch and being stuck in the model of the 1960s and 1970s. And, and so the IB is on a pathway to you know, evaluating and, and, and redeveloping our program. Yeah. There's no better partner for the IB than UWCs, which were there from the very beginning and helped to kind of co-create the IB and Atlantic College being the home of all that work. So it's just a fabulous time to have the spirit of rethinking that's causing through the IB itself and through UWCs and now taking advantage of the space we have mm -hmm. to pilot and also just the locations, the ideas, the, the, the capacity to use the full strength of an institution like UWC Atlantic and its unique position on the body on the edge of a body of water and thinking about what sustainability and systems look like in that part of the world. The practical bits about this is taking the idea of systems transformation and, and questioning what those key systems are in the world that have to change and how we can create space on our campuses with groups of students who will still go on to university, will try things out on their own and pursue their own personal ambitions or use their time while they're going through the IB to take part in this interdisciplinary way of coming at systems. So let's take food systems, you know, for example, what are the multiple ways of thinking about provision of food in society? You have to think about the ecological systems, you know, when you think about food, think about the economic systems, the agricultural systems, the distribution systems, all of those systems operate together to guarantee food security in the world. But when people come at these conversations, you often come at them from, you know, from a single subject point of view, a siloed point of view, which is disconnected yeah. from the other pieces around it. So it's important to be educating people as systems thinkers, because that is really how the world operates. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself is a challenge to what was, you know, what remains the dominant IBDP approach of studying this confluence of subjects and, and you know, hopefully you become a more rounded person. It's actually pushed on that approach and creating room for a multidisciplinary approach to learning. And so Atlantic College is taking the lead on that. Uh, this summer, actually, in the next couple of days, we've got the first cohort of students who are going to start this program. And for the next yeah. two years, we're going to be keenly observing their journeys and, you know, watching their reflections and really seeing, can we rethink the way we learn and the way we expose young people to knowledge? And can this system's way of thinking and learning push them to develop new skills and make them more future fit and, and equip them for leadership and entrepreneurial approaches in the world? And, and when this is successful, because we know it's going to be successful, we can then learn from that and influence the work of other schools within UWC. And like you say, there's another set of pilots about to begin in, yeah. in Southeast Asia. So the spirit of innovation is kind of flowing through the movement. And I'm very keen on on this particular pilot, because I think it informs the IB, it informs other schools around us, and it inspires us to reclaim this spirit of innovation and trying yeah. things and being on the front foot. So very sure. exciting. No, things. it's very, it is absolutely very exciting. And I mean, the interdisciplinary aspect, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that interconnection, the systems aspect, but I also wanted to ask you, because I think this is something I've also noticed in dialogue with some of the young people in these different UWC schools is that the systems word, right? So you've got systems transformation, right? The systems word, fine. We can all kind of accept that systems are interconnected and we need to understand, we need to be systems thinkers to kind of interact with this globally interconnected world. But it's the, the transformation word is quite loaded, right? Because implicit in that word is there's something wrong with the current systems yeah. and they need to be yeah. transformed. So I yeah. just, that's an interesting one when as a educational organization in terms of clearly very heavily values-based as we've heard mm. already but i wonder mm. what your reflections there about that that idea of is there an implicit acceptance already with the course itself that mm. something's wrong and needs to be transformed yeah there's some interesting tensions there i think i think that you can live with two tensions one an eagerness to make a difference and secondly a recognition that things don't change overnight 
right? So it's it's almost an evolutionary mindset that has to be built in. And when you're a young person learning about the world, not even as a young person, any one of us who observes society, we're much quicker to see what needs to change than embracing what needs to stay, right? So I think, yes, look, if we think, if we, if we think at, at a macro level, the world does need some transformation. And the key systems that we live with need to transform. How quickly will those transformations occur? None of us can predict. We can co-create the future. We can't predict it. So I think, yes, we recognize that our economic systems need to be transformed because if we are constantly leaving people behind in our unequal societies, unequal societies, then transformation needs to happen. The climate crisis is a constant reminder that some things we're doing are not really working and we have to be keen to address them. You look at the cycle of global conflict in the world. We know something needs to change. We look at consumption patterns. We look at deforestation. We know that things need to change. So yeah, I think I think we acknowledge and we own the narrative that some change needs to happen, not all at the same time, not overnight. And we, we can't drive ourselves crazy because things haven't changed the way we wanted them to yeah. change. But I think it's an acknowledgement that if you are observant, the world is really going through some yeah. difficult times and we want to be part of that transformation and we want to help people find that interconnectedness. Yeah. yeah. But I think if I can, that's that's what I think is really exciting about it because it's courageous. So that acknowledgement is courageous, right? Because you don't make that acknowledgement publicly in such a strong way without pushback. So for example, take take an example of the Daily Mail in the UK, quite a you know, right-wing newspaper. The, the headline that they came out with when they heard about the systems transformation courses Hippie Hogwarts gets hippier, right? <laughs> Great. I mean, brilliant headline, right? If you're a headline writer, yeah. like touche, right? Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. But inevitably, because yeah. of the kind of dialectical, te- you know, the way that the conservative progressive forces are work at work in society, always, always are, always will be, inevitably, there will be others, others who say, this is overly political. This is preempting. It's not what education should be doing, right? Because you're, yeah. you're politically preempting the things that need to be taught, but actually, you know, there's a there's a, a lifetime's worth of, of debate yeah. around that. But I, I think it's it's an interesting one. That it's the courageous acknowledgement and just stepping into that space and saying, yeah, absolutely, things are yeah. evident. I that think, things yeah, need to change in look, some ways. Realistically, we we can't afford to be naive. I think is the point, and we we feel the effect of these changes in society already. We already know what we're dealing with. We know that environmental justice is not a fad. The impact of of human activity in climate, in the environment, the impact of human activity in what has fostered conflict in the world, these are not political statements. They're just fact. And it's on us to, yeah, it is is courageous, but we can't be naive about the cycle of conflict, the cycle of, of climate degradation, environmental degradation. We can't be naive about the need to bring people together, to walk together closer to be futures focused, to think about biodiversity, and again, to borrow from Costa Rica, the concept of reciprocity, mm-hmm. that we must leave our environments better than we found them. And so I think our job here is to be responsible and not to follow, not to be discouraged or disheartened by, again, the toxic you know, public space that is driven by extremist ideologies. It's on us to think responsibly on behalf of the young people who are entrusted to us, on behalf of the future of our, of our societies, for the future of the world. If we wouldn't do it, who will do it? Mm. We have all the ingredients. We have all the motivation. And, and the world is looking to us to not shirk our responsibility. And I think our schools will not do that. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I'm very much in support of it, but I think it's I think it's just an important thing to acknowledge is that, that there are these aspects to this this step that is important. And I have heard, you know, I'll be honest with you, I have heard young people within UWC colleges talking about this. It's quite a challenging balance to create a, an open environment in which multiple perspectives can be held, right? Because when you have quite a strong value statement around progressive ideas of change and transformation you then potentially create a space where well can i be a uwc student and be holding these more conservative views that Mm. i would really like to Mm. express in this space but it doesn't i don't feel able to express these conservative Mm. feelings and ideas and i have i've heard young people reflect on that 
in an incredibly mature way. The fact that they're reflecting on that is is phenomenal. But I think it's an interesting challenge from an educational point of view, trying to create those spaces where genuine emergence can happen, as we were talking about earlier, and not kind of preempting what can emerge because you're constraining the space with certain values-based ideas. That's that's, that's powerful. And, And I think it, look, I think when you come to any of these communities where we are creating the space to sit with uncomfortable conversations, they get really uncomfortable because who yeah. who's brave enough to step into the middle first, you know, holds onto the line. And, and I think this is, it's a process of getting better introduced to self and then getting introduced to others and getting yeah. introduced to big concepts. And that transmission happens at different paces for different people. So you can't question the fact that when you come into any space like a UWC environment, some people will be further along than others. Mm. And it's not a race to who flips the opinion, you know, 360 or 180 first. It's about acknowledging the different paces and where we've all come from. Diversity could be a challenge times. I mean, to work with diversity and work with complexity Without doubt, what I have seen is that by the end of a UWC journey, everyone recognizes that they have shifted one way or the other. Mm. Because if your ideas are so clear to you, but they haven't been put up for challenge, how clear really are they? Exactly. Right? Yeah. How powerful are they? And everyone goes through that. And you don't come to UWC to change your ideologies, but to question them, experience multiple ways of thinking, different ways of approaching this conversation on any subject. Yeah. About politics, about religion about gender, about race, about any construct of human existence. By stepping into this different spaces, everyone experiences some measure of discomfort. And that discomfort could be a powerful catalyst for learning to work together, which is the ultimate purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Not a single one of us is going to change the world by ourselves. We always Mm. do that in community. And you have to learn how to do that. Yeah. And sometimes those really uncomfortable experiences of having your clear ideas being challenged would propel you to becoming a much more conscious member of society. And that is worth fighting for. A hundred percent. Amazing. Absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. And it also puts a huge onus on the art of the practitioner in terms of the educators to hold those spaces. And that's another, and we haven't got time for it now, but that's that's another piece to it, which I think is amazing. Okay. So just to finish with I, I know that you've been engaged you engaged Harvard University to look at some of your work and I think we've talked about I mean some amazing work that UWCs all over the world are doing I guess the question to end on is how are you kind of holding yourselves accountable to that work yeah. and how are you knowing that that is is having an impact and is you know is making the difference that you say it is I, th- I think firstly when you come into what is an empirical study rather than you know a PR job You've got to be prepared for for what is a study, <laughs> and and a study almost always has recommendations. And exactly. no matter how squeaky clean you hope you are, you know a study will unpack some of the That's areas true. in which you have to improve. Yeah. And and I think I'm I'm grateful that we exposed ourselves to scrutiny and allowed some of the world's best researchers to have a look at our operations. And over the course of five years, they accompanied UWC students observation a lot of deep investigation of what happens in and out of the classroom and then overlaying that with the voices of alumni people who are across generations from every decade over the last six decades and then having control studies as well with students from other schools that are not uwcs trying to really investigate what happens over the course of a person's uwc education that propels them towards becoming pro-social ethical entrepreneurial change agents for the world Some of the findings from the study were just absolutely fascinating. And for us, they reflected some of the things we knew well and some great reminders of what to continue to focus on. The first thing for me, which was a big headline from the study, was the power of the mission. The fact that of all the reasons people come to UWC, the absolute number one by a country mile was the proportion of that mission, the sense of purpose. And that's just, it's a nice place for us to go back and think, wow, amazing, thank you. Because how many high school students think about the mission of their school? How many adults <laughs> reflect on the mission of the school they went to and question it, debate it, sit with it, you know, argue about how well it's been lived up to? The fact that the mission is such a point of tension 
is a major endorsement that the mission is working. You know, so that, that yeah, for me was just absolutely. great to sit back and realize I don't recall the mission of my high school. But here are young people who are sitting with engaging the idea of a mission. That's number one. The second thing which was super important for us was that across generations, the absolute number one takeaway that everyone had from the UWC education were the connections they made with people. And not just anecdotally, the evidence is abundant. I was reflecting in a conversation yesterday about some UWC alumni who were enthusiastic about the 50th reunion to go back to Atlanta College for the 50th reunion. I'm thinking, wow. Yeah. You know, and more than half of the class of 1973 at Atlantic College showed up for their reunion this summer. Yeah. Across generations, this is happening everywhere. It means that those genuine connections they made are lifelong connections. And if you go all the way back to 1962, when Atlantic College was being established, you had this first sort of young boys coming together, all different parts of the world. And you're wondering, will they learn enough about each other? Will they bond? Will they represent the picture of a united world where you can actually connect people across countries, geographies, backgrounds of race, religion, socioeconomics, etc. Well, there's the proof. Mm. For decades, they have stayed connected. They have worked together, gone into business together, run governments together. You're thinking it's working. You know, yeah. it really is powerful. And now you hear that same reflection through a study conducted by Harvard that the, the number one takeaway from everyone was that they built true lifelong connections. I think those two things is great proof that it's possible to have a powerful mission to attract people. And at the same time, it's possible for strong bonds that are formed to last the the, the length of decades. You realize we're onto something. In between all of that, you have to live with the more uncomfortable tensions around, you know, well-being, around the best expression of a curriculum, around you know, living up to the mission and, and sustainability and all of those things. So there's a lot of reminders for us saying that there's a, a ton of work to do. Sure. But at a meta level, it's a fascinating expose into the power of mission-driven institutions to last for a long time. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's so interesting. So we'll, we'll link, I'll link to it in the show notes so people can read it if they're interested as a document. But just what you were saying there, I think from a complexity lens is really interesting because you're building informal networks and you've, you're setting direction. And those are two really interesting principles within complexity science, right? And yeah. it's sometimes difficult to build informal networks explicitly and intentionally. It almost happens as a byproduct of something else. And, that's right. And it's, that's such an interesting reflection that just, yeah, yeah it, really, it really connects there with, with the complexity science. I really appreciate that. Faith, thank you. I mean, this has been absolutely fascinating for me. And I just, it makes, it leaves me with lots of questions. Like how how can we not be turning away 90% of the young people who are applying to UWC where, you know, how do we create more schools like this where we can get young people into, right? <laughs> yeah, no, this, this are the same tensions we deal with. And I think we, we're just incredibly grateful for what we are a part of, what we're able to help to contribute to the world. And most importantly for us to inspire others to come on this same journey. UWC yeah. will not transform education by itself. We'll do that with partners. Exactly. And yeah. we, are, we are grateful for the partners who have supported us at the beginning of the journey, at the end of the journey. You know, those who are helping us find this incredible people, those who are supporting the education next steps. There are lots of people who make this whole thing work. Sure. And we want to do so much more of this. Let's continue to find ways to inspire each other to greatness and to build this systems way of thinking yeah. that these 18 schools by themselves are not the solution. They are part of the solution and others can be inspired as well and partner and challenge us to yeah. find ways to, to keep doing better. So this has been great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Faith. And I'll be, I'll be watching along and supporting with the systems transformation work. Absolutely. So brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to continue the dialogues with our guests, with us on our blog or on social media, or within your own networks.